Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude and over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. Hello, friends. We are back in business. Are you guys vibing with the new intro music? That is a Scott Holt original. So enjoy it. Um, My husband made that special for you. All right. Hattie, by the way, recorded a full song for for the podcast and thinks that her song is the introduction. So we're just going to have to tell little white lies. Um, Maybe one day I'll play it for you. It's pretty great. All right, so we're diving right into the Gut-Skin Connection Part 2, and we'll pick up where we left off last week. Last week, we talked about why the gut and skin are linked and the different mechanisms that they are linked, why a diet for a healthy gut is a diet for healthy skin. And remember, we talked about probiotics, prebiotics, polyphenols. Polyphenols, I got a couple questions about that. The way that I think about polyphenols, that they're sort of like pre-prebiotics. So they're not fibers. Prebiotics are certain fibers like acacia. Um, I'm not remembering any prebiotic fiber. (laughs) Guar gum, inulin, FOS, GOS, all sorts of different types of fiber, resistant starch, that feed the bacteria in our gut, right? Pre um, Polyphenols work in a kind of different way. And I did talk about this um, in the episode, how to eat for a healthy gut. But really, as it applies to you, what we're looking for is deeply pigmented things. So dark browns, dark reds, dark purples, greens, really deeply pigmented things. And that's why that I am a fan of using powders in addition to a whole foods diet. So I was actually just chatting with um, with my practitioner program. I was, I was creating lectures for my mentorship. And one of the things that I was talking about is we have to take a step back and somebody will tell you, well, I'm, I'm eating a lot of veggies. But like, how many? You know, are you eating nine servings of veggies a day? Are you eating nine cups of veggies a day? Are you eating broccoli a couple of times a week? Like where are we on the produce spectrum? Um, Because everybody's coming from a really different starting place. And I think that supplementing a whole foods diet, uh, supplementing, meaning as a supplement in addition to the whole foods diet, um, I think powders can be really helpful. And I use them based on what I see in um, on a stool test, especially if somebody's uh, good bacteria are low, I will use different types of powders, again, in addition to um, in, in the real foods. So 
Organifi has their red powder. We call it red juice because it's kind of like fruit punch, at least Hattie thinks it is. Um, They have their green powder. They have their gold. And so all of those would really be polyphenol rich powders to add to your whole foods diet. So you can check those out. We've been using them a lot. I've been talking about them a lot. They're a sponsor of the podcast. Organifi.com forward slash forward slash Funk, F-U-N-K, saves you 15% off the entire website. So when I am talking about polyphenols, that's really what I'm talking about, okay? So get all of your colors in all of the time. Your gut loves it, and then therefore your skin will also love it. We um, are going to pick off pick up where we left off. So we're going to dive into today, leaky gut. We're going to talk about specific skin conditions and things to consider for them. So we'll talk about rosacea, acne, eczema, keratosis, pilaris, psoriasis. If you, um, I would encourage you not to skip ahead to the thing that your, your, you know, to your specific skin issue, because I'm going to weave some other information into all of these things. And it's not as simple as, oh, I have eczema, so I have to do this checklist, X, Y, Z. You really have to think about all of this stuff from a whole person perspective versus like, oh, here's the protocol for eczema. It doesn't really work like that. So definitely listen to the entire episode if you do struggle with skin stuff. Uh, We'll also chat a bit about histamines and candida and even get into some liver and hormone stuff. So I'm going to kind of hit it from every angle, just like Method Man. Um, I think that's it before we get in. Remember that I have the free digestive guide. Lots of you... um, grabbed that last week. So that's still available. You can go to my website, erinholthealth.com forward slash digestive guide and pick that up and that can help you on your journey to healthier skin. So leaky gut, let's start here. First, I got to tell you what leaky gut is. Leaky gut is the colloquial term for intestinal permeability. In a nutshell, I'll try to give you the cliff notes here. So our the lining of our small intestine is one cell thick. And the small intestine is like, like I said last week, it's where the magic happens. It's really where we absorb most of our nutrients. So the things that are in the lumen, the the inside of the intestine, the small intestine is where they get into the bloodstream. We want that to happen, right? Our The nutrients from our food need to eventually access the bloodstream so they can scoot around and do their job. These the cell wall, or excuse me, the 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 wall of the the lining of the small intestine is one cell thick, like I said, and these cells are held together by something called tight junctions. These protein complexes called tight junctions. And if anything happens to those tight junctions, if if they get mucked up, if they get weak, if they get leaky, then all of a sudden the spaces between the cells open up, and this is supposed to be a barrier system. We're supposed to keep, you know, the good guys in and the bad guys out. And so if our barrier system gets weak or leaky, then what happens is things get into the bloodstream that really don't belong in the bloodstream. And this is the whole process of leaky gut or intestinal permeability or intestinal hyperpermeability. It means that the lining of the gut, the barrier system is 
permeable. Things can get through it. And that is not a good thing. We only want very specific things to be able to get through it, kind of like sneak through those those little um, those spaces. And what happens is that big things get through, things that don't belong in the bloodstream. And when this happens, because the, the bloodstream is right on the other side of the intestine, when this happens, the immune system kicks in because the immune system is also right there. GALT, gut-associated lymphatic tissue, it's right there. And so when the immune system sees something in the bloodstream that doesn't belong in the bloodstream, it launches an attack. It launches in an inflammatory cascade. The immune system turns on and says, uh-oh, this shouldn't be here. Let's go. And when there is inflammation at the lining of the gut, that inflammation can travel anywhere. Because again, the bloodstream is right there. So that inflammation can go anywhere in the body. And often, what I usually say is that often it will travel to your weakest link. And for some people, that's their skin. For some people, it's joint pain. For some people, it's brain stuff, right? It can really go to where we tend to have a lot of issues. And that is why this whole mechanism, right, of of inflammation can travel anywhere in the body. That is why symptoms of leaky gut can be so widespread and nonspecific. So some things we can see with leaky gut are food sensitivities, nutrient malabsorption, uh, because what happens is that's where we're supposed to be absorbing our nutrient. But if there's inflammation there, if there's mucus buildup there, if there's if the, the lining of the small intestine is all gunked up, then the things that should get into the bloodstream don't. So we we are less able to absorb nutrients. Um, we can see GI stuff like bloating and other, other digestive problems. We can see fatigue, headaches, um, brain fog, difficulty concentrating, joint pain. And then of course we can also see skin problems like acne, rashes, eczema, all that good stuff. So with leaky gut, we we tend to see it kind of manifest in lots of different ways depending on the person. And we the next question becomes how do we test for it? Like how do I know if I have leaky gut? And one of the ways that um we'll test for it is a marker called zonulin. So zonulin is a protein that opens up those tight junctions. It open up, opens up the spaces. And we have zonulin because um, we can, it's really good to have in case of an emergency. This is kind of what the mechanism behind traveler's diarrhea. If you get exposed to a pathogen, it's going to increase zonulin, which is going to open up those tight junctions. So everything's basically just going to rush on through because it's, you're trying to flush out stuff from your body. You're trying to flush out a pathogen. But we don't want zonulin just to be chronically released all of the time. And that is part of the problem with gluten is that it does trigger this zonulin response. And that's why consuming gluten can lead to leaky gut for a lot of people. But the issue, so a lot of a lot of practitioners will use zonulin as a marker for leaky gut. And if zonulin is elevated, they'll be like, yep, you got it. You got the leaky gut. But zonulin isn't really the best marker. It's, it's a one-time snapshot at the time of the blood draw. And different things can 
can um, trigger zonulin release or affect zonulin levels. So things like, did you consume gluten recently, right? Your zonulin levels are going to be higher. Are you fasted, right? The zonulin levels will probably be lower if you do the blood draw at a time that you're you're fasting. Um, People will generally produce zonulin three to six hours after eating gluten. Um, Stress can increase zonulin levels and zonulin really fluctuates all day long. So seeing a normal zonulin level on a test doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have leaky gut. And seeing an elevated zonulin level on the test doesn't necessarily mean that you do have leaky gut. So not really the best, best, best indicator of leaky gut, even though it's it's kind of widely used. Um, one test that I use is called the wheat zoomer. So it's testing all of the different ways that your immune system can react to gluten. And it's also testing for anti-zonulin antibodies. So that's a little bit different than just having high, elevated zonulin levels. If you have antibodies to zonulin, that means that your immune system has mounted a response against that zonulin protein. So that means that zonulin has been raised so often and long enough that the body has kicked in and mounted a uh, an immune response, has produced antibodies to it. So it, the anti-zonulin is a longer-term picture. Looking at the antibodies, it definitely gives us a longer-term picture. And for that reason, can be a better indicator of leaky gut. So that is one of the tests that uh, that you can do. Um, that particular test has a whole leaky gut panel, so it's also looking at anti-actin antibodies and a number of different things. So the next question would become, what? how do we heal it? How do we fix it, right? If I have the leaky gut, what do I do? How do I tighten up those tight junctions? How do I heal up a leaky gut? And this is where I deviate from a lot of practitioners because, or I don't know, health coaches or bloggers, maybe not a lot of practitioners. Um, The answer to this question is that it depends on what is causing the mechanism of leaky gut. Like what's the mechanism of action? What is driving the leaky gut? Uh, You can go ahead and Google leaky gut protocol or leaky gut diet. And that is, you'll find that model. It's a very simple, basic model. You'll find it all over the internet, right? Everybody's talking about it. Everybody has a blog on it. And it's some form of gluten-free, dairy-free diet, plus glutamine and some other supplements. So that isn't enough to move the needle in a lot of cases. Really what we need to do is figure out why you have intestinal permeability. Figure out why you have the leaky gut. And by the way, I'm spending so much time talking about leaky gut because it's it's present in a lot of skin issues, a lot of skin conditions, okay? So if you have skin stuff, it, it definitely makes sense to start to think about this. So different reasons that you that would make your gut leaky, if you have just a poor diet, right? We talked about this last week. You need to be consuming an anti-inflammatory diet. Uh, a diet high in processed food is just going to contribute to the leaky gut process. There's no ins and you know, there's no way around that. That's kind of just how it works. Um, for some people, most people, um, especially if you have some type of chronic inflammatory condition like a skin issue, then gluten can contribute to the leaky gut picture. 
through that process, you know, that, that zonulin protein. So you really have to think about diet, right? That is a big contributor to leaky gut. Another thing that can cause it is infection. GI infections can contribute to leaky gut. Uh, hormone deficiencies. We need hormones. We need ample, robust hormones to rebuild the gut. Like I said last week, our gut rebuilds itself every few days. It's amazing. But if you do not have the raw materials to do that, whether that's nutrients or sufficient hormones, then that's going to be a problem. When le cortisol levels are high, it actually breaks down the lining of the gut. Cortisol, high cortisol is catabolic. It breaks down your own tissue to free up amino acids in order to get, you know, to prepare you for immediate survival. When your cortisol is high, it's because your body thinks you are, you are in fight or flight, right? This is a threat to your immediate survival. And so it's going to start to break down body tissue and break down things in the body to free up resources for immediate survival. And so it, high levels of cortisol can really have a catabolic effect on the gut. And so you cannot rebuild your gut unless you are working on, you know, unless you have a balanced cortisol output. This is one of the reasons one, I get a lot of questions of like, um, I want to do your hormone revival, but I also have gut issues. Where should I start? And I really like to see people working on the cortisol picture first, working on the stress response first, working on the neuroendocrine response first, because it's going to set you up for um, for better for better success with a gut healing protocol. Stress is a huge, huge, huge contributor to leaky gut. There's just no way around it, right? Um, so hormone deficiencies. Also, if your microbiome lacks diversity, that can be part of the problem. That's why we want to eat all of those polyphenols and all of the fiber to get our microbiome nice and diverse. And then if you don't have healthy immune tolerance, um, that is something, it's basically when your immune system overfires. Um, we don't really have time to get into that today, but that could be part of the, the leaky gut picture. So ultimately, you really have to find the underlying mechanism first before you attempt to heal leaky gut. Um, and that is best done with a practitioner for sure. Um, I know that I talked to you pre-pandemic. I was building out your gut revival. Um, it's very similar to my hormone program. It's a GI program where you can get functional lab testing for your GI stuff, your gut issues. And I am back at work. I cannot make any promises on that, but I'm back at work um, or make any promises about when I'm going to have that available, but I'm back at work at it. So that would be something to consider to find those underlying mechanisms. But in the meantime, you could certainly try that basic model, gluten-free diet, dairy-free diet, do a program, like a nutrition program, like my Eat to Achieve program, really clean up the diet, and then maybe add some glutamine or other gut healing supplements. Um, I mentioned these last week, but I will reiterate them because it's interesting that the supplements in the literature that have a lot of effectiveness on healing the gut are also the same things that are very powerful in restoring um, skin health. So colostrum, L-glutamine, collagen, turmeric are all um, powerful ways to, to heal both the gut and then by proxy the skin as well.
Okay, so that is a that is a place to start, but if it's not moving the needle on your gut, then you might need to do a deeper dive. So, but for some people that's good, right? For others it's more complicated, it might not be enough to correct, and you really have to treat leaky gut from a whole person approach and consider what are all the factors that are causing inflammation because all of those factors can break down tight junctions. So, for an example, um diabetes or somebody with out of control blood sugar, somebody that has glucose levels that get oxidized. Um, so they have a high hemoglobin A1C, which is a high gly- uh, glycated hemoglobin that can break down tight junctions. So if you know your hemoglobin A1C is high, then that is what needs to be addressed to heal the lining of the gut in some some cases. You can take all the glutamine you want. You can take all of the collagen you want your mainlining collagen coffee all day long, but unless your blood sugar levels come down, you won't be able to resolve the intestinal permeability, right? And you're really not going to be able to fix leaky gut just through diet or a nutraceutical in a lot of these complex cases. You're going to have to figure out what the triggers are and then you can remove them, okay? So that's that on leaky gut. Now let's dive into specific skin problems. I want to start with rosacea because this is kind of my bag. I am no stranger to SIBO, or excuse me, to rosacea. I just kind of gave you a little teaser of what's to come. So rosacea is heavily linked with SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. The prevalence of SIBO in rosacea can be 60% or higher. So in most cases of rosacea, there is underlying bacterial overgrowth in the smart intestine, and treating the SIBO can alleviate the rosacea. There is also a link between rosacea and H. pylori. I chatted about that last week, H. pylori. H. pylori is seen in a lot of different skin stuff. I did a whole episode on H. pylori, so you can you can tune in and listen to that. Um, I don't have the number off the top of my head. But if you're ever looking for um, a specific topic on my podcast, go to my website, erinholthealth.com. Use the search bar on the bottom and just punch in whatever topic you're looking for and it will populate if um, podcast material. Okay. The, th- the interesting thing with rosacea is that a lot of folks will say, well, I don't have a gut problem. Like with rosacea, you really do want to test for SIBO, um, but people are are unconvinced because they're like, I have no issues with my gut. And I'm like, well, remember what I said last week is that sometimes the skin can be one of the first and only symptoms of GI imbalance. So rosacea, if you have rosacea, definitely, definitely, definitely want to check on what's going on in your small intestine. You know, do a SIBO breath test and treating the SIBO, which I'm making that sound way easier than it actually is, but treating the SIBO can eradicate the the rosacea. And that has certainly been my experience. Um, I've struggled with SIBO on and off in um, in the past, but um, it, and when it flares up, I will I'll know less so because of GI stuff and more so because I will see the ruddiness, the redness on my cheeks come out. Um, and when it's when it's pretty bad, I will I will see that really amplified. So um, I. I chronicled my kind of um, what my skin looked like when I knew that I had a SIBO 
infection and then what it looked like while I was treating it and then what it looked like after I treated it. You can see that if you go to erinholthealth.com forward slash skin, I have a skin page on my website and it showed like kind of shows you the breakdown of, of all of that. And I also um, threw up just unedited, no filter photos when I was self-treating for SIBO. So you can see that treating, I didn't do one single thing different on my skin, not one speck of a thing on my skin. I just addressed the SIBO and you can see um, the progression of my skin. It's pretty wild. Um, okay, acne. Sorry, maybe I'll edit that out. I just had to take a huge gulp of water. Acne is primarily an inflammatory disease. So, and I, we have to chase down the inflammation. Uh, we have to go inflammation hunting with acne. Where's the inflammation coming from? Uh, stress is also a massive contributor to acne. And it's one of those things people are like, yeah, 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 stress, stress, stress. But really, um, I am going to link you up a, a pretty cool article called The Neuroendocrine Regulation of Sebocytes, A Pathogenic Link Between Stress and Acne. I mean, the title says it all. Sebocytes are the, the sebum-producing epithelial cells. And those cells have receptors for corticotropin releasing hormone, CRH, which is a stress hormone. It's pretty wild. But you can check out, if you're into digging around research, you can check out that article. It's a pretty interesting one. Um, I will also link to an article that talks about acne as primarily inflammatory disease. Um, so we have to think about where the inflammation can be coming from. Food sensitivities are, are a huge trigger for acne. Uh, dairy is most common, but certainly not the only one. And what happens is that we eat the food that we're sensitive to, our gut gets inflamed, and then that infl inflammation shows up on the skin. Okay, so that's kind of the the how how that all plays out. And then, of course, if we're eating foods that we're sensitive to, it's going to contribute to the leaky gut process, which is going to even contribute to more infl inflammation um, and more immune reactivity and all, whoop, all that good stuff. There is some good data supporting the role of diet in acne. So we, of course, we want to think about nutrition. And it really boils down to trying to get any synthetic hormones out of our diet. So this is through dairy. This is through conventionally raised meat. We want to, we want to mitigate that as much as possible. Um, another big thing to consider for dairy, excuse me, for acne is sugar intake. So foods that have high sugar, foods that have um, high refined carbohydrates, so high glycemic foods can affect insulin and it can in fact affect insulin-like growth factors, which promote the production of androgens and then that promotes sebum levels and acne in the skin. So again, I, I, I keep harping on the eat to achieve style of eating, but that is that is a really important place to start for skin issues. You've got to clear out the junk. You got to clear out the high, highly inflammatory foods. You got to clear out a lot of the sugar. You have to clear out the processed stuff. You have to clear out the high antigenic foods, and that can really move the needle on skin and on acne. Now, if you know that you have high blood sugars, 
the carb compatibility project could potentially be a better option for you just because we dial in macronutrients a little bit better. But those would be things to think about, really honing in on cleaning up your diet and following a program in order to do that. Um, and uh, 37% of people with acne also have gut symptoms, and then 40% have low stomach acid. So if you have not downloaded my digestive guide yet, do that because it talks all about low stomach acid, how to know if you have low stomach acid, what to do if you do have low stomach acid. Um, and it really maps it out, spells it out exactly for you. So you, if you have acne, you might be one of the 40% of people that have low stomach acid. And so that is part of the, the treatment plan is to address the low stomach acid. Now, we also need to talk a little bit about hormones here because as we know, like we love to blame acne on hormones and that could be true, but we also have to address the gut piece. So we, I wanted to start there, start with the gut, but I will dabble into hormones a little bit. So we know that female acne can be caused by higher levels of androgen Androgens are testosterone, DHT, DHEA. DHEA, first of all, is an adrenal hormone. It's an androgen, but it's produced by the adrenals and it's increased during times of stress. It's one of our stress hormones. So there's another stress connection. If we're under stress, and I see this all the time on the Dutch test in your hormone revival, if we see high stress, that's driving up DHEA, that can contribute to acne, okay? Um, it is, especially if you are favoring a certain pathway, your androgens can go down one of two pathways. One is called the 5-beta reductase and one is called the 5-alpha reductase. If you are pushing down the 5-alpha reductase, that converts your androgens. I say it supercharges your androgens. So it takes your DHEA, takes your, your testosterone, and it supercharges them. It turns testosterone into DHT, which is three times more potent than testosterone. And so these, these androgens stimulate the sebaceous glands to produce more sebum. That's the connection there. That's why it will drive. That's one of the, the mechanisms that drives the acne. And so when we see cyclical acne, what happens during our female cycle, estrogen and progesterone levels drop, and then that can leave testosterone a little bit higher, and that is what can drive acne around your chin and your jaw. So if you have an imbalance in estrogen and progesterone, or you have low progesterone, that could also tip the scales into more of a... Um, cyclical hormonal acne picture. And this is all stuff that we can see on the Dutch test. So the, this is a test that I run in your hormone revival. That's the 13-week process where we test and we rebalance your hormones. The next round is February. You can get on the list by going to erinholthealth.com forward slash hormones. Just type in your email and we will notify you as soon as registration opens. But it's with 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 hormonal acne, it's I, I just see a lot of people throwing things against a wall to see what sticks. And this is where the, the functional testing can can really come into play. Now, if we do see, if we do see that five alpha reductase enzyme going going uh, crazy, if we see that that preference in somebody, oftentimes the the real culprit, is blood sugar imbalance. 
um, insulin surges can cause major shifts in hormones. It activates an enzyme in the theca cells of the ovaries called 1720 lyase, and that can increase testosterone and DHEA. So we just see insulin really contributing to the overall androgen, high androgen picture. We see this a lot in PCOS, but um, you don't have to have a diagnosed PCOS condition in order to see this pattern. So of course, the we always want to, we can do some things to kind of spot treat to address the the acne, to address the the symptoms, but ultimately we do want to address the underlying cause of out of control blood sugar, out of control insulin. So that's why I created the Carb Compatibility Project. It is the plan to do exactly that. I've been getting an uptick in um, DMs and questions about how do I eat a low glycemic diet or how do I eat to regulate blood sugar? I have a four week plan that spells out exactly how to do that. It's the Carb Compatibility Project. We will run the next round in January when we hit 2021. Can you believe it? We are right around the corner. We are Q4 2020. Um, so again, that high androgen picture is something that we see with PCOS. That's that's why we tend to see acne with PCOS for all of those reasons. PCOS is often paired with insulin resistance and inflammation. So it's just kind of creates the perfect storm for acne. And you can see this acne on the chin, but you can also see it on the chest. You can see it on the upper back. Um, so, so a lot of things are going on there. And, 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 and estrogen metabolism comes into play too. So I will see somebody dealing with acne who, um, who might not have GI stuff going on and is not high androgen. It's not part of that high androgen picture. So then I start to scratch my head a little bit more and I'm looking at their estrogen metabolism on their Dutch test because there's a certain pathway that your, that your estrogens can press down. That's the cool thing about the Dutch test. It's not just showing levels of your hormones, but it's showing where's your hormones going? How are you clearing hormones out? What, how are you metabolizing hormones? And there's a certain pathway that your estrogens can favor that creates a very potent estrogen. It's, it's proliferative. It helps things grow. And so oftentimes when somebody's favoring this pathway, we might see heavy periods, uh, breast tenderness, maybe some fibroids. Um, this this pathway can potentially worsen endometriosis. It can make breast cancer grow if somebody already has breast cancer. It's it's prolif pro proliferative. It's it's heavy growth. Um, but what it can also do is enhance sebum production in the skin. So that pathway can sometimes be the cause or a uh, part of the acne picture. So that's kind of interesting. Um, so that's something that I'm looking at in the Dutch test. So yeah, acne definitely has some ties to the skin for, or excuse me, to the gut for sure, but there's also a hormonal picture as well. So we want to be thinking about both things. Next up is eczema and, um, or atopic dermatitis. And this is a big, 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 big gut connection. Poor gut bacteria and food sensitivities are the two biggest culprits of eczema in the literature. Um, food allergies have been shown to cause inflammation in the gut, right? And then that can contribute to leaky gut. So both of those things can contribute to eczema. Eczema is another system-wide inflammatory condition. So we want to think about what is driving the inflammation. Dairy and gluten are 
the most common for eczema. So again, we could either test for those, we can remove those from a, um, from with a elimination diet, eat to achieve is a gluten-free, dairy-free food plan. So if you've struggled with eczema and you haven't at the very least tried gluten-free, dairy-free, that would be the first place that I would have you start. Um, but it's not, you know, that those are not the only foods that somebody could be sensitive to. Now, I will say that by the time somebody comes to me, if somebody has eczema and they're coming to me, they've already tried the gluten-free, dairy-free thing, right? I, most of my eczema clients have already been on some type of elimination diet and might be on a long-term elimination diet and still are not really sure what foods they're what foods are um, working for them. So I just, in case you're listening and that fits your picture, you're like, yeah, I've already done gluten-free. I've already done dairy-free. I'm like free of this, free of that. You might be on an AIP or really more restrictive diet. I don't want to tell you to double down on that. In fact, I want to tell you the opposite. These elimination diets can really be a a total mind F. Um, The reasons that elimination that I see eliminations diets not working well is that a lot of us are out of touch with our bodies. We're so accustomed to seeking answers outside of ourselves that we've we have to retrain self-trust, we have to retrain intuition, we have to come back to ourselves. And so unless you've done the work to do that, it can be really challenging to to tell am I reacting to a food or am I or am I not? And I will, again, I will say that most people that come to me, this is where they're at. They're like, I think I'm reacting to this food, but I'm not totally sure. Like I don't even know anymore. So people can get really stuck. It can create a lot of food fear, a lot of food stress. It can create unnecessary restriction and not from a, I want to lose weight standpoint, but from a, I'm just afraid to eat anything. I don't, I don't know what's safe for me anymore. And so And especially if somebody has a history of any type of disordered eating, if any type of orthorexia, this elimination style diet might not actually be appropriate. I actually get really kind of cagey about this, that when uh, a practitioner puts somebody on a, with a history of restriction on a really restricted food plan, that that's not really appropriate. That's going to drive up the the trauma response. That's going to drive up the stress response. And that is going to make it even more challenging to suss out food sensitivities because stress can impact the way that our body responds to food and stress can mimic food sensitivities. So it, you can see how it, it, it creates this really difficult web and um, I see this a lot. And then on top of that, doing a long-term elimination diet with no exit strategy can lead to microbiome um, imbalances because it's starving off the good bacteria. You're not feeding the microbiome. So this can create more problems in the long run, histamine issues, loss of oral tolerance, and just can continue to perpetuate the same problem where you're creating more and more and more food sensitivities. So I know I'm speaking to a very specific class of people right now. If this is where you are, I think that you're actually a very good candidate for doing testing. So you want to get to the bottom of, is there a pathogen that is driving this? You could start with food sensitivities testing. You could start kind of basic, right? The Zoomers, I talked about the Zoomers last 
class, I think, um, but that's available on my website. Um, it's through a company called Vibrant Wellness and they're very specific tasks that you can run. I, I For eczema, I definitely recommend starting with dairy, with uh, wheat, with corn, and with eggs, but there's, you know, nuts can be a, a contributing factor for some people. There's, you kind of want to read through the information that I have on my website to help you determine what's the most appropriate for you. But, you know, if, if that doesn't help, if you've done the elimination diets, you might want to consider functional GI testing because if your GI issues or your skin issues are caused by an infection, then a diet won't fix it because you're not addressing the root cause. You can't out-diet a pathogen. You can't just keep taking foods away from yourself, hoping that it's going to heal the gut. If there's pathogens in the gut, then that needs to be addressed. I've seen people come to me on restrictive or on elimination diets that have candida and H. pylori and SIBO, and none of the restriction is going to heal those gut infections. So... Um, I want to really drive that point home again. You know, maybe you're listening to this a year from now and I can be like, your gut revival is the gut program that I have for you at this point. I don't have it ready, but that would be a really ideal plan for somebody. Uh, and then another very recent study found a strong correlation between a very specific gut bacteria, uh, fecal bacterium, uh, Prausnitzi. I've heard somebody say it before, but that was the first time that I've taken a stab at it. Um, and and atopic dermatitis, right? So now we're starting to see that folks with with eczema do have overgrowths of opportunistic bacteria. And the, the same patients had markers of gut epithelial inflammation, which can lead to barrier impairment. So basically what that means, inflammation at the lining of the gut, and that can lead to leaky gut, right? So we know that there is this big connection. And then I also see, like I had just kind of mentioned, a connection between candida and eczema. So folks that are that I see with chronic eczema, um, I also will find candida with them. So I'll, I'll circle back around to that in a second. But I want to continue on the food sensitivity train because histamine intolerance can also be at play with not just eczema, but other skin stuff, stuff as well. It can really be a part of a lot of different conditions, um, eczema, rashes, hives, dermatitis, itching, psoriasis. So we want to think and think about histamine issues. And what I was saying is that we see a pattern of long-term food restriction, like doing a, 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 an eating plan like AIP. So people with eczema will go on autoimmune paleo protocol, and this actually drives up histamine intolerance. So it's it's this really tricky web to get out of. But some symptoms of histamine intolerance include congestion or runny nose after eating or feeling like you have to clear your throat or your throat is like kind of seizing up after you're eating, redness, flushing, or rashes after eating, crawling skin sensations on the skin or the scalp, vertigo and dizziness, anxiety and panic attacks. Sometimes we can feel like heart palpitations even, 
low blood pressure, migraines, and headaches. And all of this is especially true if you notice an uptick in these things after eating high histamine foods. So this would be fermented foods, including kombucha, uh, including wine, including beer, including fermented veggies. Yes, I know that some of those foods are healthy for you, but if you have a histamine intolerance, it can really drive these symptoms. Um, leftovers are high in histamines. The longer the food sits out, the more histamine it accumulates. Aged uh, and smoked meats and aged cheeses can all be high in histamines. And so if you, if, if you are sensitive to these foods and you have a histamine intolerance, that can drive inflammation. And of course, the 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 point that i keep driving home is that inflammation can show up as eczema and it can show up as other skin conditions so we have to break down histamine we we get exposed to histamine a, a lot of different ways we can eat histamine rich foods like i just talked about um it So like histamine can come into our guts through eating high histamine foods. Like I said, alcohol, anything fermented, kombucha, vinegars, fermented veggies, sauerkraut, citrus is high in histamines, cured meats, chocolate. And then on top of that, our immune system, part of our immune system, mast cells can produce histamine in reaction to allergies, to food allergies, to, um, to seasonal allergies, right? So those things combined can overflow our histamine bucket. It's not that histamine is bad. It's a normal reaction. It's a normal response. It's a normal part of our immune system. But if our histamine bucket is overflowed in the way that we handle our histamines, the way that we clear our histamines, we have to break down histamines with an enzyme called Dow. If that enzyme is deficient, either for genetic reasons or otherwise, or we have too many histamines coming in and it's overwhelming this enzyme, then we struggle to break down histamines and clear out histamines in um, in our guts. And this can contribute to symptoms. So um, the other one of the other ways that we break down histamine in our gut is with bifido species. Uh, it's a type types of bacteria. And that is part of the reason that restrictive diets can contribute to histamine issues like therapeutic diets because they can decrease gut diversity. It can lower those bifido species. Uh, It can reduce the beneficial bacteria that help to break down histamine. So it can, so we become more, um, our, our histamine bucket gets easily, more easily overflowed. And then all of a sudden we are reacting to these histamine rich foods that we never used to react to. So there's a few different things you can do here if histamine intolerance is your bag. There's short term solutions like going on a low histamine histamine diet. Um, you can take Dow supplement. Uh, that's that enzyme to help you break down histamines. You can take that with your meals. Things like quercetin are, are, are strong and potent antihistamines. You can even in, clinically with clients, I'll use actual over-the-counter antihistamine medication as a little bit of a mini test. If you take antihistamines and it helps any of your mystery symptoms, you're like, oh, I had all these weird things. And then they got so much better once I, you know, when I was taking the antihistamine, then we know that you're probably dealing with some histamine issues, but it's not something that you want to rely on as a long-term strategy because long-term use of antihistamines can reduce that Dow enzyme, that enzyme that breaks down histamine. So if you're constantly suppressing it, it can make us less tolerant to histamine-containing foods 
over the the long run just because we're less able to break them down. Now, obviously, if you have to take antihistamines for comfort levels, then do that. I'm not saying don't do it, but just understand that that can make you more prone to histamine issues in the long run. Um, but ultimately, what we want to do is try to figure out what's driving the intolerance and try to get to the roots of what is filling up your histamine bucket. IgE allergies can contribute to histamine um, response. So these are not like your delayed food reactions like we were talking about, but like immediate reactions. Like I eat the food, I have the problem or, you know, seasonal allergies. Interestingly, there are certain foods that can cross react with pollen. So if you know that you're allergic to pollen, um, whether it's birch, elm, grass, I don't know, this is not my skill set, but if you know you're allergic to pollen, then certain foods might make um, your body think that you're getting exposed to pollen and will produce a histamine response. So apples, apricots, cherry, kiwi, melon, nectarine, orange, peach, pear, plum, green pepper, carrot, celery, parsnip, potato, tomato, and peanut all fit into that category. And it doesn't mean that all of those foods are going to cause you to have a reaction, but some of them might if you are allergic to pollen. If you have an IgE response to pollen, the eating some of those foods can trick your body into thinking that it's actually pollen. Um, I'm going to link to a pretty handy guide. Um, it's foodallergens.info, but it's a pretty handy guide. If you are sensitive to pollen, that could be something to check check out, uh, especially if you have skin manifestations after eating certain foods. Okay. Um... Other things that can contribute to histamine issues, having high estrogens, and I don't really have the time to explore this, but I am going to have Dr. Becky Campbell on the show soon, and she'll talk to us all about histamine issues. So P.S., if you have questions about histamine, send them to support at erinholthealth.com. Lauren will get those queued up so I can ask Dr. Becky about them. We'll have plenty of time to, if you're listening to this in real time, we'll have plenty of time to to get those all queued up for Dr. Becky Campbell. But high estrogens, uh, mold can be a contributing factor, gut pathogens, opportunistic species, hidden infections. In my clinical experience, histamine issues often appear with H. pylori infections, with candida overgrowth, with low bifido species in the gut. So those are the things that I'm really thinking about when um, when working with somebody. So, um. All right, I had mentioned briefly candida, so I'm just going to chat about that if fungal overgrowth is your bag. So with candida, we can see histamine issues, we can see eczema, we can see skin stuff. But the thing is, people go so hard at candida, but it's usually secondary to something else because we all have candida living in our bodies, living in our guts, living on our person. So something triggered that fungus to kind of take over. Candida's really scrappy. If you if you give it an inch, it will take an entire mile. So something happened where um something happened that compromised the gut microbiome, that compromised the gut immunity. So oftentimes this can be anti uh, antibiotic use. 
It could be simply just be poor diet. It can be stress, right? There's a lot of different things that can kind of tip the scales. And then on top of that, candida will feed off of sugars and starches. And that is what causes a lot of the symptoms because they thrive off of sugar and starch. So if you Google like candida diet, it's going to be a really low sugar diet. Um, but again, you also have to think about, um, what tipped the scales in the direction of letting this opportunistic species take over. Uh, candida is a really tricky one. I'm not going to lie. I, I see it a lot clinically. I work with a lot, a lot clinically and, um, certainly don't have time to get into it here, but I also want to just put that on your radar that that could be part of your overall skin picture. Okay. Now let's talk about keratosis pilaris, which is also known as chicken skin. It is red bumps that usually happens on the backs of the arms. Sometimes you can see it on the front of the thighs, sometimes on the old bum. And it is often paired up with inflammatory conditions like asthma or allergies, not always, but sometimes. So inflammation can be part of the overall story here. But most commonly what drives keratosis pilaris is fatty acid deficiency. Uh, we will see vitamin A deficiency as well, which is a fat-soluble vitamin. So we supplementing with fatty acids, with vitamin A, with vitamin D, with vitamin E, vitamin K2 can be really helpful, but you also want to wonder why the deficiency is happening in the first place. Maybe you're just simply not getting enough in the diet. And that could be, it could be as simple as that. And doing some supplementation can be really helpful. Uh, but we can also see this secondary to fat malabsorption. So perhaps you are not digesting your fats well. Maybe you have poor bile flow. Um, maybe you have some gut damage for some reason. So if you have keratosis pilaris, you can supplement with fat-soluble vitamins, but I also want you to go and get my digestive guide and read through that and see if any of that sounds like your picture and maybe do some digestive support, especially with fats, fat digestion support on top of um, supplementing with fat-soluble vitamins. You also have to think about what you're putting on your skin. So sodium, laurel, and laureth um, sulfate can be really problematic for this. Basically, you want to eliminate all synthetic fragrances, all weird, junky stuff. Any, We're going to talk about this in a hot minute, but I just want you to say, like, switch over to safer skincare really, really, really important for keratosis pilaris. Okay. And you can check out my skin page, erinholthealth.com forward slash skin for more information on different products. And then the final, yeah, the final one I'm going to talk about is psoriasis. Now psoriasis is an autoimmune condition. So the treatment is really more about immune stabilization versus how to treat the skin. You want to think about it from an immune perspective. How do we support the immune system? And I have quite a few resources available to you. Uh, episode 67, Tips for Coping with an Autoimmune Flare-Up. I also have a blog um, written, Tips for co uh, Coping with Autoimmune Flare-Up, and then How to Test for Autoimmune Triggers and Root Cause. So I will link those up in the show notes for you. Um, so you can check that out. Um, things to think about 
with autoimmune conditions and psoriasis specifically, leaky gut, gluten, GI pathogens, um, skin mast cells, like the mast cells in our skin in active psoriasis can be functionally hyperreactive um, to histamine. So we might want to consider histamine reactions for psoriasis as well. And, um, but really it's about how do we stabilize the immune system? So go check out those resources that I've laid out for you. Now, if you are struggling with skin issues like acne, psoriasis, eczema, using an infrared sauna may help. Um, I just came across some interesting research, um, about infrared sauna light, how it's very anti-inflammatory for the skin. It increases blood flow to the skin, so it can increase your own collagen production. It helps with skin firmness and elasticity. So that might be something, if you have access to an infrared sauna, that might be something for you to consider. Um, I, I always get this question. So I, I did buy a sauna for my house um, a little over a year ago, or maybe a year ago. I, I purchased the sauna space just because it's smaller and it just seemed to fit in our house a little bit better. So we do have that one. And all right, so I am coming up on an hour. I said I was going to talk about the liver a little bit, but that might have to be part three because (laughs) I'm getting a little tired. I'm not going to lie. So why don't we cut it here? And then at some point, I will come back with part three, where we'll talk a little bit more about the liver. We did talk about hormones. We did talk about the gut already. So the liver is kind of the last thing to explore from a gut health perspective. So P.S., if you have any questions about liver stuff, send those my way as well. Support at AaronHoltHealth.com. All right, you guys, that's it. Hope everyone's hanging in. Talk to you next week. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you got something from today's show, don't forget, subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.